We're turning to Genesis chapter 2. Mainly we'll be in Genesis 2 verses 4 and following. So when you find that, just put your finger in it. I also want us to look at uh, a couple verses from Genesis chapter 1. So I'm just going to read them together. I will let you know where we are at the right moment so you can follow along. Uh, let's, Let's begin in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. This is God's word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. Now chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and clothed up his place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we 
we rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. Your word is a treasure for us. It is life to us because your word is you speaking to us, you giving yourself to us. That's what we have come for this morning. We have come to be with you. We were made to be with you. And so we ask that you would make that happen this morning, that you would come by your spirit, and that as we consider your word together, that we would grow in knowing you and grow in loving you and grow in living out the purpose for which you made us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if the name Stephen Jay Gould is familiar to you. It may not be. He was an evolutionary biologist and a science historian from the late 20th century. And he famously said this about the meaning of human life. He said, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers ourselves from our own wisdom and ethical sense. There is no other way. What do you think about that? Is there no meaning to life except what we construct for ourselves? There are two stories in the world trying to win your heart and mind. And one of the stories says, you're not here for any purpose at all. You're just lucky. Your, your ancestors survived. So your life has no meaning except what you make of it. So go make your meaning. Go, go make yourself. Decide what you're going to be and go be it. That's one story. The other story says that you are the capstone of a deliberate creation. You are known and handcrafted by God. You're here for something. Your life has meaning and purpose. Not a purpose you construct, but a purpose you are given. You have a calling. Now, which story resonates with you? Granted, resonance is not a measure of truth. You might really like the way something sounds and it not be true at all. But which resonates with you? And consider, consider of that first story, whether that can even be lived. Okay, he says that we have no meaning, no purpose, except what we construct for ourselves out of our own ethical sense, out of our own wisdom. So what if my wisdom and ethical sense differs from yours? And in my wisdom and ethical sense, the meaning of my life is to make as absolute much money as I can, no matter what lines I have to cross or what people I have to betray to get there? What if, what if I decide that the meaning of my life is that I'm going to be happy no matter what it costs, me or anyone else, no matter who I have to betray to get there? Now you could say, if the first story were true, you could say you don't prefer my way of seeing the world. You don't prefer my wisdom and ethical sense, but could you say I was wrong? If there is no meaning, if there is no purpose, there is no measuring stick. We're just making this up as we go along. You might not like the way I do it, but could you say that I was wrong? Does that way of seeing the world satisfy you? Or are you open to the possibility that you came from somewhere, 
from someone that you were made for a purpose. That's what Genesis 2 is about. God created us for a purpose. He created us for himself. And in this passage, God shows us our purpose in three fundamental relationships of life. To him, to work, and to community, to one another. So first we want to see our relationship to God, which is to live before him in trusting obedience. Now, in, we looked at Genesis 1 a couple weeks ago. Last week we were looking at the beginning of chapter 2 when Adam preached on, on rest. And we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that Moses is careful to make really clear something really special is happening when humans are created. Right? In chapter 1, there was this refrain through the days of creation. God said, let there be light. Let there be an expanse. Let there be. Let there be. But what does he say when he comes to humans? He says, let us make. Something different is happening, right? He says in chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. Nothing else is like that. Something special is happening. And we see a similar heightening in chapter 2. Moses tells us, he says, there was no bush in the land, right? No, no plant of the field. Everything was just waiting for humanity to come. He hadn't, he hadn't caused it to sprout because there was no man to work it yet. It was waiting for us. And then when God makes man, how does he do it? Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God shapes him like a potter, shapes his art, and then he breathes life into him. And there's some parts of that that aren't unique to humanity, right? There's Later in chapter 2, he'll say that God had formed all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air from the ground. That, that doesn't set us apart. In chapter 1, he says that the animals and the birds, they have the breath of life in them. That doesn't set us apart. But what, what makes us unusual? It's how he made it, right? He formed him from the dust of the ground and he breathed life into his nostrils. You could, you could almost say that he awoke Adam with a kiss. The first face that Adam saw when he came to life was God's face. He knew him face to face. And that's what we were made for. We were made to live before God, to know him face to face. This is what the garden was for. It was a paradise where God and men could live together. There's this part, we'll see it next week in chapter 3, where God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. There's this, this picture of God and his people having communion together, living in paradise now, in verses 10 and following, Moses describes, it's, it, it's kind of weird how much he focuses on this, this, this river that becomes four rivers, right? It becomes four different rivers. And, and Moses' point in that is that the garden was a real place. Now, we don't know anymore. It's been thousands of years. We don't know where the Pishon and Gihon rivers were, but we know about the Tigris and we know about the Euphrates. So we know about where the garden was, but, but we don't know exactly. But Moses' point is this is a real place, this happened in a real place. And he even includes these details that at first seem, why is that even thrown in there, right? He says, now that was by Havilah, and there's gold there, and the gold is good, right? And, and there's bdellium, and there's onyx stone, and you wonder, why of all things did you put that here? Is that really getting done what you want to get done? And those details are important, and here's why. I would, I'm not expecting you to, but does, anybody, does anyone know where gold and onyx stone appear later in Scripture? No, it's okay. The, the tabernacle. Do you know what the tabernacle is? 
It was the mobile tent that God's people carried with them through the wilderness after they came out of slavery in Egypt. And God had them make all the instruments, everything inside the tabernacle, it was made of gold. There was a lampstand and a table. There was the Ark of the Covenant. It was made of gold. And God gave instructions for how to make that, and he gave instructions for what the priests were to wear. The high priest was the one who would bring blood into the most holy place. And, And God gave instructions for the garments, and on his shoulders he had these stones. And these stones had the names of the sons of Israel written on them so that when he went into the most holy place, bringing the sacrifice, bringing the blood, it was as though he was carrying the people of Israel with him. Do you, do you want to guess what stone that was made of? It was onyx stone. So these details are, are telling us something. Have you ever noticed that if you read those passages where God describes how to make the tabernacle or the temple, there's this, he, he likes everything in there to be kind of floral. The, the lampstand is, is shaped like an almond tree. In the walls of the temple, which were made of gold, there was carved palm trees and flowers. There were pomegranates. Why? What's, what, what is the connection that God is making for us? Well, it's that the temple, which comes later, was like a little replica of the Garden of Eden. It was carved inside like a garden because it was the, it was the place where people could meet with God as they once had at the beginning. And so what's the garden then? The garden is like, it's all temple. It's all sacred space. It's all a place where you can live with God. No matter what you are doing there, eating or sleeping or working or being intimate with your spouse, it was all before God. It was all worship. And that's what you were made for. You were made to live before God, to have every aspect of your life filled with his presence and done for his pleasure. That relationship is meant to be at the center of your life. And where that's missing, if that's not there, then there's a vacuum at the center of your life that something is going to rush to fill. Either you're going to, you're going to look to work to satisfy you, or to romance, or to your kids, or to money, or to experiences, but none of that is going to satisfy you like this. And so you're just going to need more and more of it, and you're going to go from one thing to the next, and you will always feel empty because you are made to live before God. And there are terms to that relationship. So look at verse 16 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If we're to live before God, we must obey him. He made us. He's the king. And if we're going to obey him, we must trust him. Now, I want you to see what God doesn't say to Adam. He never tells Adam why it's wrong to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He never tells him what what would have happened if he had used it the right way, right? We, We never find out what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was for. There could have been a time when God would have said, now eat. And, and we don't know what would have happened if we'd taken it at the right time, given the command by God. All we know is what would happen if we steal it. That will die. Right? God's asking Moses, or he's asking Adam to trust him. He doesn't tell him, here's why it's bad. He just says, it's bad. Trust me. If you eat of it, you will die. Maybe you've wondered, why did God put that tree there in the first place? Right? Why have a tree 
that would, that would lead to death and the ruination of the world. Why, that seems like a flaw in the plan. But it's because we don't know what it would have been for if we'd taken it the right way. All we know is what happened when we stole it. Death. The way to live before God is trusting obedience. Obedient trust. God's rules do not always make sense to us, right? Your rules do not always make sense to your children. Your rules do not always make sense to a three-year-old, but you expect them to trust you and do as you say, right? And the gap between your three-year-old's understanding and yours is nothing compared to the gap between your understanding and your creator's. We just have to trust him that his rules are for our good. We trust him even when we don't understand. We were made for him, to live before him, and we were made for work. So let's look secondly at our relationship to work, which is to serve God and God's world. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So this is before sin. This is before the fall. Work came before that. The garden was a paradise, and part of the paradise was work, was doing something meaningful with your life. Remember that God created humanity with a vision in mind. In chapter 1, verse 28, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They were called to fill the earth. So remember that the earth was perfect, right? But it wasn't all garden. The garden was one little part of it, and the rest of it was uncultivated, untamed. And God was saying, start here and then move out. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Turn it into, to make it all garden. Make it all a beautiful, wonderful, cultivated place to live before God. He was calling people to, to not to exploit the earth, but to use it to make societies and found cities and plant farms and express themselves through art and culture and innovate new technology. There was work to be done. Work is not part of the fall. Work is part of your call. It's part of your purpose. It's part of why you were made. Now, after sin entered the world, we're going to see this next week, work is frustrated. Nothing goes the way that it's supposed to. It's, he, God describes it as there's going to be thorns and thistles. It's going to be hard. Work is cursed, but work is part of what we were made for. It's part of our serving God. Many of our frustrations in work come because we go wrong in one of two ways, right? It's possible to make your work too important. Your work becomes to you God. It's what you worship. It fills the vacuum in our life. We look to it for our whole meaning and significance. If we succeed in our work, we feel valuable and validated. But that feeling fades, so we always need a new accomplishment. We need a new promotion. We need a new well done from the boss. And if we don't get it, if we fail, if we get fired, then our world just collapses because our work is what we were looking to to give us our purpose, to give us our meaning. It was our God. And this happens to pastors. I love my job, but I can stop serving God in my work and begin serving my work as God. I can find my value in how well the sermon goes, in how many people are coming to church, in in nice things people say about me. My joy can rise or fall based on my perception of your perception of how I'm doing. And we all can do this. This is a temptation for everybody. We make our work too important. But we can also make it not important enough. It can just become a means of getting by. We want to we work at it, 
We don't want to lose our job, but we only want to work as hard as we have to. We see no purpose in it other than just meeting our needs. Maybe you've had this fantasy of winning the lottery or inheriting a fabulous amount of money from somebody, and, and you just think, the day that comes, done with work, right? I'm just going to walk in, drop my phone on the desk, I'm out, right? Why? What, what view of work is that? That work is just a necessary evil. I'm only doing it because I have to. And that's not it either. Work isn't ultimate, but it's important. It's a way of serving God. It's a vocation, a calling. Frederick Buechner wrote, The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Work is a calling to find how the things that God has put in you, your abilities and your passions, how he can use them in the world for the good of other people. God still wants us to fill the earth and subdue it, to care for creation, to make this a great place for people to live and to live before God. Are you doing that in your work? Now, almost any job can be a way of doing that, of serving God and serving people, right? Obviously, if your job requires you to disobey God's commands, that's a different scenario. If your work enables injustice, that's different. But all kinds of work can be pleasing to God. God, And God does all kinds of work, right? God is an artist. He's a builder. He's a teacher. He's a judge. God became a man and was a carpenter. God is a parent. God is a worker. And you were made for work, but not just work. You were also made for community. And so thirdly, this passage talks about our relationship to community, which is that we depend on one another in gratitude and faithfulness. So in the garden, to this point, Adam knows God face to face without sin. And Adam has deeply satisfying work from God to do. And yet God says in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone, I will make a helper fit for him. This is the first thing in creation that's not good. It's not evil, but it's not complete. It's not ready yet. It's not done. God made us in his image, and God lives in community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so his image, us, we were made to live in community too. Sometimes a person can be so hurt by people, so disappointed, so betrayed, that you just say, From here on out, I'm going on my own. Or from here on out, it's just me and Jesus. And God says that's not good. It's not good to be alone. We were made for human community. Now we're going to look at the first community, which was a marriage. But marriage is not the only way to have deep and meaningful community. And even if you're not married, there's going to be something in here for you too. But for Adam, the first community God provided was a marriage. When God saw that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, he didn't just replicate him so there were two Adams in the garden. He knew that Adam needed someone like him, someone with whom he could have a deep and personal relationship, but someone unlike him, someone different. And so he made a woman. God says that he needed a helper. Now, I, want you to, I don't want to be misunderstood there. That word helper, it, it carries no sense of inferiority. Okay, the, the word helper is often used in scripture of God himself. So I don't often tell you what the Hebrew word is. I don't, I don't find that helpful usually, but the Hebrew word is ezer. And the reason why I wanted you to know that is because Moses named one of his sons Eliezer, which means my God is helper. 
My God is help. Same word. God is my helper. In Psalm 33, verse 20, the psalmist says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. It's the same word. So to say that Eve is Adam's helper is to say that her strength will meet his need. That what he, she, what he lacks, she will supply. He will depend on her, and together, they'll do things together they could never do, he could never do alone. The Bible does not teach the inferiority of women to men. It teaches the complementarity of men and women. We complement one another. We're complementary, not, not complementary. That doesn't just mean we, we say nice things about each other. That's not bad in marriage, but we complement one another. We, we fit together. We're different, and that makes us work together. We're strong in different places. In a puzzle, no piece is more important than another piece, but no piece is the same, right? It's the same with men and women. God made us differently so that we're stronger together. But there's something else I think it's important to point out. Men are not superior to women, but God has given to men a leadership role in the family. God made Adam first, and he gave him work to do, and he made the woman as his strong helper for his purpose for them both. In chapter 3, which we'll see next week, Eve was the first to eat the forbidden fruit. But when God came in the garden looking for them, do you know whose name he called? Chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He came looking for Adam because Adam bore ultimate responsibility for the family. He was supposed to lead Eve and he failed. And that's why God came looking to him first. So, to honor the teaching of Scripture, we have to hold two things together. Men and women, first, are made equally in the image of God. Chapter 1, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Men and women are both made in the image of God equally. They have equal value, equal dignity. They, they equally can know God. They're equally smart. They're equally talented. They have equal potential. They're equal in that, but in the complementary roles assigned by God, men are called to lead. Every team has a leader, and God has called men to lead team family. But before you start to push back, first observe the kind of leadership that they're called to. Okay? Another place where the Bible talks about this, these complementary relationships is Ephesians chapter 5. So in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, Paul says, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord.'" Does God call wives to submit to their husband's leadership? Yes, he does. For some of us, will that take trust in God that his ways are good even when we don't understand? Yes, it will. But what kind of leadership does God call men to? Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The way men are to lead their wives is by sacrificing themselves for their wives' good A husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church. Give everything up for her. A husband should be thinking about what would give his wife and children joy. What would help his wife and children grow in their love for God? What what would help his wife and children become who they were made to be? And then he helps everyone move in that direction no matter what it costs him personally. If a husband is leading like that, then submission to his leadership should not be a chore. There is no place in scripture or in the church for male leadership that demeans women, that dominates, that intimidates, 
that marginalizes, that abuses, that silences. None. Leadership is not a weapon. It's a way to love like Jesus. Husbands should not leave this morning. You should not get in the car and say to your wife, see, you got to submit to me. God says so. That is the wrong attitude. That is not the attitude that Adam had. When God brought Eve to Adam, did he say, finally, someone I can boss around? What does he say? What does he say? Look at verse 23. God brings Eve to Adam. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. How does Adam receive the gift of a wife? He sings. He's so grateful. He's so happy. A good marriage is marked by gratitude both ways. God has met your weakness in the strength of your spouse. Your work is more fruitful. Your life with God is more joyful. Your home is more restful because you're both there. A good marriage is a constant celebration. But that can only happen where there's faithfulness. Verse 24 says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. You become, uh, marriage creates an indivisible new family unit, right? I don't know if you guys remember a few years ago, uh, Chris Martin from Coldplay and Gwyneth Paltrow announced they were divorcing. Do you guys remember the phrase they used of their divorce? They said they were, it was, an, it was a conscious uncoupling, as though they were just, as, as though divorce were just a matter of letting go of somebody's hand. But everyone who's been through a divorce knows better. Divorce is a death. The one flesh union is torn, and everyone in the family feels it. To have a marriage like this, you have to be faithful. He says that Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed. They didn't fear, they didn't fear abuse. They didn't fear abandonment. They didn't fear betrayal. They were totally at, at ease. And that can only happen when you know your spouse is going to keep their promises. Okay. But now some of you unmarried people who are paying attention are thinking, wait, so if it was not good for Adam to be alone and he wasn't complete until God brought a wife, does that mean that I can't be complete until I get married? Can I, can I never be complete on my own? And that is not what it means. The most complete human who ever lived, Jesus Christ, was not married. The Apostle Paul was not married. Marriage is the first human community. For many, it will be a primary community, but it's not the only community. It's not even the best community. You don't need to be married. You do need a family. And that's why God created the church. Our marriage relationships will not continue into eternity. But this will. In the new creation, I will not be married to Kim. But I will still be your brother. These are the relationships that endure. In even the best marriages, each spouse needs other brothers and sisters on whom they can depend. We find strength for our weakness here. Encouragement in our down times here, faithfulness in friendship here. We can have the kinds of relationships here that the world is dying for lack of. God created us for a purpose. He created us for himself. He created us to live before him in trusting obedience, to serve him in our work, to love him in community. And we don't. We don't trust him enough to obey even when it's costly and we don't understand We worship our work or we just sleepwalk through it. We insulate ourselves from community or we use the people around us. 
but someone has done it for us. Someone always obeyed the voice of his father, even though it cost him his life. Someone served God in all of his work, and then at the end said, it is finished. Someone really did lay down his life for his bride so that she, so that we, could be washed clean and made holy. Jesus has done what we could not do and offers us not just forgiveness, but his Holy Spirit who will come into our lives and empower us to live out our purpose. And more than that, Jesus will one day make all things new so the whole world will again be the garden where we can live before the face of God. Your work won't satisfy you and your relationships won't bring strength and gratitude until this happens to you, until you say to Jesus, I know I have a purpose and I know I haven't lived it. Forgive me, renew me, and help me to find it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that though you are great and holy and all-powerful, all-knowing, though you are so, so little like us, though you are all the things that we're not, that you desire fellowship with us, that you made Adam to see your face, to live before you, to walk with you, and that when, when we ruined it, you made a plan to bring us home at the cost of your son's life. That your commitment to you knowing us and us knowing you is so great that you gave your son's life to make it happen. Thank you. And I pray that you would help us to live according to our design, to live according to your purposes in our life with you, in our life at work, in our life at home, in our friendships, in our families, that you would help us to experience the good of your ways and bring glory to you by living according to your purpose. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.